0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, June 7th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. We invite you to join us at CommentaryMagazine.com where we give you a few free reads and then ask you to subscribe. That June issue is still up and glowing on the website. You can read its contents if you subscribe. Um, So much good stuff in there. And uh, two of its authors are with us today from that issue, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And of course, with us as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, uh, just want just to w- throw a couple of things out that have literally nothing to do with uh, contemporary politics, but suggest... Uh, something about how the world works that can work in different ways from the way we think it works. Uh, Weird little piece of news, okay, that you would think does not matter to the people who listen to us. It involves the Khan Film Festival. Khan Film Festival, the most notable film festival in the world, a place where... Movies go to, you know, get launched, to get critically acclaimed. There's a whole market where people sell things and buy things. And there's a big competition for who's going to win the big awards. And uh, it was announced today that the opening film of the Cannes Film Festival uh, is a French film, the name of which I I don't remember, but which stars Gérard Depardieu. And why do I mention this? Gérard Depardieu, probably France's uh, biggest uh, male film star of the last 40 years, uh, was charged with rape uh, in December uh, 2020. Uh, uh, He's, I think, in his 70s now. I mean, it's not surprising that Gerard Deprenu would be charged with rape, as in many interviews over the last 40 years, he has said things like, I used to rape people all the time. That's what we did, is we rape rape women, rape and rape, rape. And his publicist would say, no, he didn't mean it. He doesn't mean rape, Whatever. But apparently, he has now been uh, arrested, uh, charged with. And I, 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 bring this up only because I, I read it like a couple minutes just before we came on, and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm flabbergasted because, um, you know, I thought that uh, this sort of thing wasn't really possible anymore. Uh, and we heard uh, about France over the last year that there was this, you know, uh, incendiary book that came out about one of the leading figures in the French literary scene uh, who was a pedophile or, you know, an ephibophile, whatever you want to call it, and the uh, memoir by a, a woman uh, whom he uh, started uh, uh, statutorily raping when she was 13 or 14. Uh, this guy, whose name I can't remember, also, you know, uh, hotly defended himself on the grounds that this is uh, what uh, men and women are like and uh, this is how things were and how they are. He's sorry, she doesn't feel so good about it, but whatever. And, you know, the uh, the first impulse in, in in France's literary life was to kind of circle the wagons around him. Uh, and, you know, we kept reading articles that this is the reckoning, this is the reckoning for France. And um, apparently it's not, <laughs> because the heads of the Cannes Film Festival decided to program a film starring uh, France's biggest, who is... It's like Bill Cosby, sort of. It would be like if you, you know, if you, like, uh, we're going to have, I don't know, the Sundance Film Festival uh, when Cosby had been arrested and charged, uh, you know, with those crimes and not yet convicted. And his movie uh, started the festival. So, Well,
1: it's also, it's a first time female uh, director, I think, of his movie, which has the ironic title, Robust. So we'll ah, see. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, I, I, I'm only bringing this up because it's sort of I, – I, I don't
0: think it has a larger meaning. I mean, I, I think maybe one way in which one can talk about how it has a larger meaning is this. Um, we are very focused on the dangers and threats of cancel culture and the ways in which – a lot of us – the ways in which the Me Too movement – Instantly went too far, turned into a star chamber. Accusations became convictions. People lost their jobs on the basis of rumor, uh, unconfirmed rumor. We all knew people who were, whose lives and careers were destroyed on the basis of very questionable, uh, accusations. There is a lawsuit going on right now between one of the people who was, uh, says he was slandered on this uh, web document called the Blanky Media Men List, Stephen Elliott, who claims that Moria Donegan, the person who uh, organized it, um, destroyed his life and destroyed his career and needs to be held accountable for that because he did not do whatever it was alleged he had done on the on this list. Um, and all of that is, is is terrible. And on the other hand... There's something that needs to be acknowledged uh, on the right about the nature of cultural figures in the West over the last 60, 70 years. And not only their misogyny, but some weird alliance uh, of convenience, according to which... The sexuality of women, and particularly young women, particularly women under the age, girls under the age of eighteen, were a subject of not protection, but uh, sort of like leering, grossness, and and a kind of uh, uh, apologia or support for treating them as fully sexual beings rather than as you know maidens. Who deserved social protection? Who well, on the
2: right is not acknowledging that? I mean, even on a, even on the basis of partisan terms, the Me Too movement extirpated mm-hmm. mostly powerful men and protected it, protected by institutions that were on the left. That's absolutely that had true. Leaning sympathies I and mean, the Me Too movement like, built. Uh, Bill O'Reilly's extirpation from Fox News predated the Me Too movement by like two years. Right.
0: Okay, that's a perfectly fine point. I, I'm more talking anecdotally in my own in my own universe or my own world. I mean I think Noah makes an important point. Like who who was who was who who was finally taken down, right, in the Me Too? Harvey Weinstein, noted Democratic donor, right? I mean we now have Matt
2: Lauer Half a dozen people in in culinary arts yeah, and right. all these institutions that yeah. are center left in ethos, if not right. uh, you know directive. Okay. But, you know,
3: I I think there's a to the extent there's a larger point to talk about here. It's it's also that um, Europe and perhaps France in particular is not open to the kind of um, sort of self correction and self criticism that Americans are perpetually you know. All about this, this sort of, you know, making themselves better and more humble, of course, and um, you know, sort of willing to, despite the reputation for American bluster and the and the willingness to dictate to others. There is, there is, in fact, I think, a much more self-critical tradition in this country than in Europe. long shot.
1: Well, and there's a grand tradition, isn't there, in France of mocking American Puritanism. And during right. the Me Too movement, that that came to the fore right. again. So it's not a surprise that Depardieu, who, besides being a you know famous French celebrity, is, is a really excellent commodity for the French filmmaking industry. And I do think, John, there's one part of your point that I think is true, and it, it doesn't really have a left-right distinction. It has an industry versus, or commodity versus non-commodity distinction, is that that the things that uh, the Me Too movement were trying—that that it was trying to root out—the things that I think, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, you can agree with: the misogyny, the abuse of power. That has not had a thorough accounting in the uh, entertainment industry. For example, I think the weird uproar over that Netflix show Cuties showed that the the hypersexualization of young women continues apace. Many of them doing it to themselves on Instagram and OnlyFans. There hasn't been a real cultural reckoning with with that even as the Me Too movement took a few heads and put them on the wall. I mean,
0: I just think there's an interesting thing about uh, uh, the the turn in the national culture that began sort of in the 50s, though we attributed to the 60s, which is a kind of combination of the idea that it was time to put aside all of this puritanical focus on purity and virginity and, 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 uh, you know, all of that and sort of let loose, um, let loose the suppressed, uh, soul of people sort of Freudian, a kind of post Freudian idea that, you know, we were all living in repression, the repression produced neurosis and, 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 uh, and apathy and depression, and that you know we needed to figure out ways in which to accept our true animal natures and all of that. Um, you move on then to kind of the libertinism of the 1960s and 1970s that that kind of emerged from a lot of that. And um, but the weird thing is that culturally, since we're talking about the Khan Film Festival. Uh, culturally, this expressed itself in a in a in a in an astonishingly sniggering fashion, like the sex comedies of the 1960s, all of which were, and I hate to use this terminology because it's like, you know, giving in to the enemy, sort of, but all of which were focused on the objectification of women and the notion that, you know, who boy, you know, Raquel Welch, Kim No, you know. <laughs> Uh, however you want to put it, um, down to the sort of sex comedies of the 1970s, Porky's and Animal House and stuff like that, all of which had the most astonishingly disrespectful treatments of women and women's sexuality, all of which were done by people who, you know, I'm sure, you know, were respectable and reliable progressive voters and did not see any disjunction between... Their marketing of these kinds of images and ideas with their progressive politics. In fact, they thought that they were kind of similar. And you can also say that there was a whole world of feminism in the 1990s that uh, got itself wildly confused in relation to this, also, where it was deemed to be empowering to be. Christina Aguilera singing about how I'm a genie in a bottle, you got to rub me the right way, or Katy Perry being a teenage dream, or, uh, um, I mean, you know, there are like... That's still, but all that still exists and is, I think, uh, ramped up. um, I don't think it's, I, I honestly don't think it's ramped up. I mean, here's what's culturally interesting is that you have this weird world in which The two, you know, the biggest star, the biggest singing star of the last three or four years, Billie Eilish, who was a teenage girl, though she is now adjusting her look, she came out wearing baggy shirts, punky hair, not desexualizing herself to an, you know, whereas... Again, yeah, but you have generation. Megan the
1: Stallion and okay. wow. I mean, I think you have okay. it all you, you have, she's she's the still the exception, not the rule in terms of who makes money in the industry and who who culturally kind of mainstream middle brow culture embraces as as you know, the song of summer or whatnot.
3: Right. But uh, also John, I just wanna remind people that, you know, when you're talking about um, like, you know, uh, the f- film culture media of the uh, the seventies and and the like the, you know kind of the pornography and who was in line w- with that stuff i mean yeah. um larry flint was a hero of the left
0: right right well he was a hero of certain right so this is where it all everything gets so wildly complicated you know yeah. he was a hero of the left except that there was a corner of the left feminist left that said not only is pornography an evil but it is the purest expression of heterosexual male desire and therefore heterosexual male desire is itself an evil, you know, that all, you know, Susan Brown Miller, essentially all sex is rape or all male driven sex is rape. And therefore, so it's all, but a, a lot of that confusion and a lot of this, these cultural messages do have to go with, there was a, until about five seconds ago, the general perspective of the left was that the right, whatever it was it like favored the rich and it did this and it did that and it was also a drag it was a it was a drag nobody wanted to have any fun nobody thought that sex was fun nobody thought that flirting was fun and and you know like good ribaldry was fun and you know they're just so awful or and hypocritical because of course then Pastors are out having, you know, Jimmy Swaggart is out having sex with his secretary and all of that. And so they're just hypocrites and they're prudes and they're drags, right? And then you come to this moment in which uh, the lions of culture, you know, are are the I mean, not that the con film festival is the lion of culture. It's just suggestive of something how hard it is to peel this away. Not from, to give away yeah,
2: okay. the thesis of chapter six, but I've been thinking about this very topic. Okay, for this is chapter. Okay, seven months. this is
0: chapter six of Noah's forthcoming book. So if you're gonna if you're gonna be self-referential, you've at least gotta do no, some I'm salesmanship. You do it. Okay,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is, this okay. is actually this yeah. is you know it's a courtesy. So I'm yes. just letting you yeah. you know the new pure. But generally, yes, the two of them, and the war on fun and the two of these theories are complementary only insofar as you could think that, you know, there's still that sort of effort to destigmatize uh, libertinism on the political left insofar as, you know, you have sex, heteronormative sexual relations are still hegemonic and anything that attacks that hegemonic idea is valuable queer constellations, and polyamory, and half a dozen other sexual uh, orientations, which are proliferating at a rapid rate, right. um, and also this kind of prudishness, a priggishness that is celebrated in popular culture now as you know a very puritanical impulse, and the two of them are complementary only insofar as they see human relations as an extension of a political activity, in that all forms of human activity in every aspect of society needs to be useful to the movement, to the movement, to the to the politics that they want to project. So, in that sense, you know, this kind of abstemious approach towards sex is very much the same as uh, as Natasha Leonard talking about how you know sex is a revolutionary act, polyamory is a revolutionary act. It's all revolutionary actions. None of it's about fun. All of it's about what you believe and what you want other people to think about you.
0: You know, it's an interesting point. Although, you know, one of the things about the way people talk about um, you know, polyamory and stuff like that is that it gets what you might, have been, you might call bourgeoisified. It's like this is all about people just trying to find connections and and being in love. And why can't three people get married? I mean, marriage is love. Love is love. You know, you can't choose whom you love, and how, and who's to judge and all of that. It's not like oh man. You know, we are liberating the human animal from all of the restraint. That was the 60s, right? That was, we are liberating the human animal from the straight jacket of conformity and bourgeois society. This is like, you can be just as bourgeois and live in a thrupple.
1: But but see the thruple it's it, there's a further step the thruples of the world want to take and that's the demand and this is to Noah's point and he's absolutely right about this it's the demand for rights for all of these things it's not just live and let live as it was perhaps in the sixties it's I'm a transgender girl I'm a transgender woman and I want to compete against other girls who were born female in sports and it's my right to do that and they don't have any rights my rights trump theirs the, the the clash of rights in the private sphere has become incredibly intense and just as our as our polarization increases and i think noah's right to say that these things become useful That's why you see old school feminists Tradfems as they're called now traditional feminists fighting you know transgender rights activists you see a lot of issues on which just as we saw with pornography with the kind of do me fighting the andrea dworkin types. Those battles have always gone on, but now they're they're done in the language of rights.
2: But that is where there's a real divorce from the playboy philosophy from Alfred Kinsey's work, um, which emphasized emphasized um, not just rights, unenumerated an rights. And we're not talking about uh, Congress. We're talking yeah. about just social conventions that lead to the maxim- maximalization of freedom on all fronts. And this Particular conversation is about limiting freedoms for certain people,
3: right? Well, right, because it's, right. it's always about the, the rights. Always involve someone else has to recognize or accept what I am am contending and and what I am doing. This this requires work on other people's parts. Right. That that's my right.
0: Right. Anyway, it, this is a very weird kind of conversation because <laughs> you know I, 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 we are
1: happy <laughs> hopel-
0: We are hopelessly confused about this. You know, that's reflected in this piece that uh, you know sort of uh, went viral yesterday by the you know this uh, the oddest uh, recruit to the world of um, what you might call neo neoconservatism on the matter of wokeness. Uh, Michael Powell of the New York Times, who was an urban columnist and a sports writer and stuff, who is now essentially covering wokeness for the Times, and had a huge piece about the American Civil Liberties Union yesterday, in which uh, he finally explored uh, the first major media exploration of the fact that the American Civil Liberties Union is no longer interested in this the key the the civil liberty that is the surpassing civil liberty of the United States, which is freedom of speech, it's more interested in uh, other broader rights that I suppose you could say work under the umbrella of civil liberties, if if you insist. But you know the you know, most notorious example being the uh, transgender lawyer Chase Strangio saying that his goal in life. Was to suppress Abigail Schreier's irreversible damage, like a, an official of the AFLC, uh, uh, excuse me, of the ACLU, saying that what he wanted was to make sure that a book was suppressed and was not allowed to be published, which was one of the most Orwellian moments of all time. Because of course, the main issue with the ACLU when I was growing up was what did it mean for a liberal organization to defend the right of Nazis marching, and the whole point was if you're going to be consistent if you're going to pr- if you're going to say your purpose is the advancement of civil liberties uh and particularly speech you cannot you must embrace the you are you were in no position not to embrace the logical extremes of your view
2: well in and, order and- to
0: defend my right to publish you actually have to defend the right of Nazis to march. And, you know, in the long run, even though a lot of people were really upset about the right of Nazis to march in Skokie, there was a great deal of truth in that understanding. Because once you say that there are higher values than speech, there are higher values than speech. And therefore that value can be whatever people say it is in a given moment. It can be the right of Jews not to be offended by a Nazi marching, or the right of Abigail Schreier... Uh, the right of a transgender a transgender people to suppress the publication of books that argue things that they don't like.
1: Well, and this, but this is where I mean, it's a strange turn. The piece is actually heartbreaking to read. If you care about civil liberties, and particularly if you care about the First Amendment, it's it's just it it's really well reported. I think you did a great job. But has the internet? Has taught us that everybody's a Nazi to someone, so it's a strange, it, it's a strange turn for at just the moment where speech is even more important to protect, and everybody's right to have open debate should be protected. That you do have the progressive left turning far more authoritarian in its in its uh, trajectory for what to do because right. they taught they call it a and the ACLU officials that were interviewed in the piece use this a lot. They call it emotional and sometimes physical harm to people that's caused by speech by words. That's right. the real. Turn that that this this idea of emotional and physical threat that words and speech can cause.
0: Well, you know, Abe, the interesting thing, reflecting on on what Noah's is saying, is that there was this idea that, uh, particularly in relation to Charlottesville and the advocacy of the AFL-CIO, uh, again, I'm <laughs> sorry, the ACLU in 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 Virginia of the right of the marchers to march in Charlottesville, that they had chosen the wrong side. And the whole point about a commitment to... Uh, let's say constitutional ideal or whatever you want to call it is that there are no sides. You're not taking sides. You are arguing for a first principle and there are no sides in first principles. I mean, there are possible emendations in first principles, which is the great argument over whether or not you can shout fire in a crowded movie theater or a crowded opera house, right? That's there are complications and that's what like all Talmudic. You know, the Talmud exists as centuries of argument about absolute divine laws and where they need to be made more elastic to account for weird exigencies of human nature and existence. But in this case, we're talking about the literal idea that there is an organization that stands for one thing that is without any shame or any sense of... um, that there's a a, anything different going on. It is now supposed to take a side in a war over speech rather than say speech is the side, right? That, okay. That's right. And, and,
3: you know, it's also, you know, it's, it's why people used to say that, um, it is in such case is in the cases where the, the most egregious things are being said that, um, you have to you have to take the side of speech because that is where it is easiest to to the that is where the instinct to suppress um, and and censor it comes in you know
0: most readily. Okay, this brings us to our new advertiser today, criticalrace.org. Critical race theory, as you know, is sweeping American higher education. At Wake Forest University, the Department of Mathematics and Statistics has implemented anti-racist math coursework. In spring 2021, the University of New Hampshire began offering a class on racism in science. And the University of Pittsburgh's medical school has even added a vow against systemic racism to the 2,500-year-old Hippocratic Oath. It's happening at universities throughout America and across curricula, from history to architecture, from medicine to economics. Critical race theory, the idea that America is an inherently racist country and that each American must be reprogrammed to dispel his or her intrinsic racism, is opposed by an overwhelming majority of Americans, yet leaders in higher education, from prestige Ivy League campuses to state schools in the Deep South, continue to impose this radical ideology on students and faculty alike. Founded, By a Cornell Law professor, criticalrace.org is the definitive resource for students, parents, alumni, university donors, and all Americans concerned about the continued creep of critical race theory in higher education. The investigative journalists at Legal Insurrection Foundation provide you with the latest updates on how individual schools are implementing critical race training, how local, state, and federal governments are getting involved, and how some parents and states are fighting back. To stop this toxic and un-American ideology, we must be diligent. Criticalrace.org is the resource you need to stay informed about this assault on higher education in America. Don't delay. Visit criticalrace.org today. That's criticalrace.org. So, you know, um, another story in the New York Times by Alex Burns yesterday reveals something relating to criticalrace.org. That is very important. A democratic autopsy, Democratic Party autopsy on the results of the 2020 election, which you would think you wouldn't need an autopsy for. There's no corpse. Democrats won. They won, you know, they remained in control of the House. They by the narrowest of margins control the Senate, and they won the presidency by four and a half points. So why would they need an autopsy? They won. Well, this uh, very considered study done over six months uh, says that they are in trouble and that they recognize that they are in trouble, that they were almost done in by a surge in uh, white voters uh, uh, to Trump uh, in that happened pretty late in the game, and that the thing that is poisonous and threatening to them over the long term, as we've talked about, is, goes under, the the simplest rubric is the words defund the police. So uh, the the adoption by the party of radical ideas about crime, criminal justice, and social order um, uh, in the absence of a organizing principle like we need to get Trump out of office are going to be very threatening to them. And what I was struck by in this piece as Democrats in in the course of beginning reading in the piece went through was a kind of bleat of complaint that, you know, Republicans said, made hay out of all this defund the police stuff, which isn't real. And yet they used it against us. And then we got nailed. So it's like, it's the it's the Republicans pounce thing. Who made defund the police a thing? Did I make defund the police a thing? They made defund the police a thing. The phrase defund the police emerges from the left. Serious candidates for office who were not blocked on their goal or their aim to rise into Congress and all of that ran on this as a platform in cities across the country from Cory Bush... Uh, winning in I think the most notable case, Corey Bush, the head of Black Lives Matter in St. Louis, uh, who believes that the that the police are evil, uh, you know, runs and wins and the squad adopts it and there are dozens, if not hundreds of progressive politicians at the local, and state levels who are pushing for, at the very least, the reallocation of monies that go to police departments into social work and social efforts and all that. The, the piece literally called Defund the Police a Republican talking point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, talk about gaslighting.
1: <laughs> Like, you know. Okay, but the, but here here's what you need to the, the, what it doesn't do is start with the right framing because the the line that struck me was the one where you had a a, a democratic operative saying um the Democratic Party has in some ways lost touch with our own electorate. There's the assumption that there's an assumption that of course people of color or the working class are going to vote for Democrats. We can never assume anything. As if I mean this is always that the fact that they have for decades assumed just that while pursuing policies that actively harm those same people has now Front and center. Uh, uh, they're dealing with it, particularly with defund the police. But you see it with voting rights arguments. You see it with a lot of other things as well. So I, it's the fact that the Democratic Party has itself shifted so far to the left that they're shocked, shocked that the the reliable voters they thought would just, you know, always vote full D ticket are now going, wait a minute my neighborhood's falling into crime and disorder things. No one's responding to this. And yet you're telling me that it's because of white supremacy. Okay. This doesn't scan.
0: What's fascinating to me is, is the fact that uh, maybe maybe you should consider this. We've talked about this over the years, uh, the cost of liberal cultural dominance. So, there are no voices in the in democratic ears. There's no one walking behind them as they march relentlessly through our institutions and dominate our cultural, you know, high water marks. Of someone saying Caesar, thou art mortal. There is nobody saying, "Are you really sure you want to say that? Is that really a thing?" Because you know, power is not eternal, and 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 uh, cultural dominance is not you know, assured forever and all of that. And you need to husband it and protect it. And that's one of the reasons that people don't embrace the extremes of their arguments but try to find some kind of middle ground, at the very least, not to give their opposition ammunition to foment the very conflict against them that will take them out of office. And Democrats have no antibodies against their own enthusiasms. Like we do. Every time anybody says anything on the right, they come at us. And, you know, granted, you know, this 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 idea sort of took a bit of a beating during the Trump years and all that. But um, you're forced to strengthen your position. Like you can't just, you know, it's like you can't just say blah and kind of get away with it Um uh, if you're going to make an argument uh, that is then going to be caricatured, part of the trick is to make it clear that your argument is more sophisticated than, the, than not only than, than it sounds like, but then you're, that your caricaturists themselves understand.
1: Well, they say blah and they get a MacArthur Genius Grant right, for it. Right, so, yeah. Yeah,
0: okay, fair enough, right. But as a result, but the MacArthur Genius Grant... Uh, You know, that's the how many divisions does the MacArthur Foundation have? You know, I mean, seriously, uh, that is, you know, in the end, politically, uh, you can get everything you get and you're still in a position in the United States where Republicans in 2020 won 2,600 counties and Democrats won 700 counties. Now, the 700 counties they won are vastly more populous than the overwhelming majority of the 2,600 counties that Republicans won. And that's why they won the presidency, and that's why Biden could get 81 million votes. That said, that is still a division. And just because you don't feel it in Bushwick, or you don't feel it if you're Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, doesn't mean it's not there and doesn't mean that if you are actually interested in the maintenance and furtherance of your party's power and its ability to get some of the things done that you wanted to do, that you don't just relentlessly push it further and further and further away from the center. And and so, I mean, that this this piece is a guide map to why Democrats on their trajectory that they're on are going to lose everything in 2022. I mean they're going to they're going to be slaughtered in 2022 on this trajectory. It's June 2021, so you can't say that all this stuff doesn't doesn't change. But if you sort of look at the panoply of issues, if you look at rising crime rates, if you look at rising crime stats, if you look at the rhetoric that they're using, if you look at the constant hammering on the notion that America is a bad country, And that the people that that seventy two percent of the American people who are you know who are identified as white are are operating by unconscious systemic evil in the form of racism that permeates their very beings. You are alienating people without winning anybody new, and that's where you get into Trump land, right? What did we say about Trump in twenty seventeen? He needed to expand his base, not not reduce it because it wasn't large enough to win him a second election and the democrats in the house and the senate need to expand <laughs> their reach not reduce it because all the all the relevant evidence is that they don't have enough people uh on their side who are going to drag themselves over glass to to vote in November 2022
2: Worse, they're talking themselves into the notion that if and when they lose, that it's going to be a byproduct of uh, voter suppression efforts and it won't be a legitimate victory. What does that sound like?
0: (laughs) Right. Well, this is an important point also because so you have have this interesting dynamic. Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, writes an op-ed, publishes it in a West Virginia paper saying, I am not going to eliminate the filibuster and I'm not going to support this uh, radical effort to nationalize elections in,
2: in, in, uh, in HR, what was called HR one, HR one now S one. Right. <clears throat> and when this was introduced, the quote for the people act in 2019, it was a statement of principle that was never really designed to become law because it's so blatantly nakedly unconstitutional. Um, among the many things that it does is, uh, it, it, provides it enforces states to adopt uh, nonpartisan so-called you know bipartisan uh, redistricting commissions, which the Supreme Court is very unlikely to favor. Um, it introduced um, uh, a provision that would establish taxpayer-backed matching funds for federal campaigns which the Supreme Court already struck down on a, on a state level and a variety of other things that, that basically federalized state level elections. Um, which anybody with a sense of constitutional propriety would know. By the way, you don't even a need, need muster.
0: Yeah, you don't even need a sense of constitutional propriety. I will read you the sentence in the constitution that didn't indicates that the vast majority of what is in HR1 is unconstitutional. Quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So the point here is that Congress may make at any time by law alter such regulations or make such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators, but that is a subsidiary clause, and we have 240 years of American jurisprudence that says Congress doesn't make the rules about how local elections are conducted. There is no precedent for the ideas that are expressed except in some of the language or regulations of the Voting Rights Act uh, which were you know intended to to make sure you know that put some, Elections in some races under federal stewardship, in some cases by consent decree and not by, you know, simple, simple uh, federal.
2: And preclearance provisions were an abrogation of the Constitution. And first, uh, the Supreme Court justices, when they had to uh, evaluate these this issue, which came before them multiple times, mm-hmm. said that this was not a, a thing that could be done in perpetuity. It had to be revised. Pre-clearance had to be revised in order to to meet constitutional muster. And Congress declined to do that. And so the Supreme Court acted with precedent right. after precedent saying this is Congress's job, but Congress can't wait around forever. And Democrats, mostly in the mainstream press, which is far more left than the party they seem to represent or try, try to speak for, have con- convinced themselves that all these state level efforts to ratify, to codify the efforts made in 2020 to make voting easier um, are somehow, but when they pare back those restrictions, which were emergency restrictions emergency efforts in, to, 2020, to a, right. in 2020 to address the conditions of the pandemic, that they're trying to codify some of those things, but also pare some back. Like for example, in Harris County, where- Harris Texas County, is, Texas. Yeah. Texas, which is, which is uh, had drive-through voting, for example, and 24 hour voting, the sort of thing that you could justify in in an, in an emergency but you can't justify forever, and so this is being framed as oh, Republicans are trying to abrogate the rights of municipalities to determine what you know what they can and cannot do, and it's an assault on democracy. I mean, they're they're talking themselves into this condition that has now led them to talk about Joe Manchin as though he's a subversive, as though he's right. going after democracy's throat. This is the, the the majority maker. Well, that's the thing in the Senate. Right. So so
3: so it's still an emergency to them, right? I mean, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a different emergency. Well, any assault on right. the
2: franchise is yeah. regarded as okay. As, but as, let's as, let's not even look. But it is the subversion of democracy. I'm trying to make a brief point here. Yeah. It is the subversion of democracy. In 2019, Texas also went after went went after a particular provision that was really obnoxious. These pop up voting stations, which were designed to subvert democracy directly, district officials would um, they they'd have one day voting. They pop up these voting polls, and the polls would would be right in front of a you know a place that that was known to be you know a, a democratic hotbed, so they get democratic votes, and then the polling place would disappear. And they wanted to get rid of that, and they did successfully get rid of that. But the design of that sort of thing was not to enhance democracy; <laughs> it was to subvert democracy. Right. Well, by voting. Right. Collective well, application of polling places.
0: I mean, look. There's two. The main thing here is that there's an argument that Trump and the Republicans want to subvert democracy. That is a that is something that needs to be dealt with, right? I mean, that is what Trump's behavior after the election, calling into question the legitimacy of the election, whatever happened on January 6th, all of that. That is a that is a thing uh, about the delegitimization of our system that is very threatening and frightening. What we're talking about here when people talk about the legislation in Georgia and Texas and other places to codify voting rules is stuff that is the result of our democratic system, i.e. legislation is written in the House, in a, you know, in a legislature at a state level. It, it goes through a process of being voted on by legislators who were elected by the people it then goes to an elected governor who can sign it or veto it and it is signed that is democracy if you don't like it you don't like what the provisions are tough this happens all the time i don't like the i don't like the cares act it passed it was signed by the president it is legitimate what's not legitimate is things that are done by fiat that do not have the democratic process involved in them. And the state legislatures have the right to design the place, manner, and time of the elections for senators and representatives. And that is what the Constitution says. And this art, this effort to elide efforts to delegitimize elections through populist claims that they were destroyed or poisoned with actual legitimate process the democratic legitimate process at the state level of the way we pass laws and that they become law is infamously bad and once again can be used by both sides and will be used by both sides. You start opening this Pandora's box and anything you want to pass through the legislature, anything you want will also be illegitimate in the eyes of the people who don't like it. That is this is a legitimization process. That is what that is what elections lead to legislation that is then signed, you know, that then, then uh, goes through a, a legislative, is signed by an executive, and then somehow passes constitutional muster in the courts. That is how our system works. That's the real workings of democracy, not the vote, not the franchise. The franchise is a whole different matter, and it's a complicated matter. And I happen to think that Republicans are nuts about their terror of of a, of a more open franchise and a more open election system. Though I am much more myself, I'm very sympathetic to the notion that uh, we have destroyed some of the civic importance of elections by distending them over time that we don't have election days anymore in the same way, and that that's bad because this was one of, the, this was a Democrat, this was the only democratic ritual that we had was the idea that everybody goes to vote on the same day or you could even make it two days, I don't even care. That is a democratic, an annual democratic ritual or, you know, more than that because of primaries and stuff like that. And we have, we're ruining it and and that that will have terrible consequences, I think. Uh, in the name of expanding the franchise simply because people find it more convenient to vote whenever they want to. Well, tough. Like, you know, if you want to fully participate in our country, then you go and vote on Election Day. But I lo- we've lost that argument. So that's how I feel. But nonetheless, that's where we are. And you know where else we are, and this is not our franchise, this is not our system, but Israel's system. I want to talk to you about Dan Sinor's podcast, Post-Corona, because Dan has a really fantastic podcast this week, an interview conducted a couple of years ago, actually, with Naftali Bennett, who was poised to be the next prime minister of Israel. Now, Israel is the nightmare version of what we're talking about here because they don't have a direct election system. They have a parliamentary system, and they have just spent two years going through four elections uh, with uh, inconclusive results. And finally, after many, many, many iterations of this, it appears that a government has been formed by seven, at least seven parties um, that basically are formed for the purpose of ousting uh, Benjamin Netanyahu from his uh, uninterrupted 12 and a half year term in office. And Naftali Bennett uh, uh, is going to be the first prime minister in a rotation, assuming that the government survives long enough for it to rotate into future prime ministers. Um, and it's a fascinating story because Bennett is somebody with almost no support in Israel. He's got His party got seven seats out of the 120 that, that, that are available in the Knesset, and yet he played his hand brilliantly and ended up as the first among equals, though he's not even an equal, and becoming prime minister. If you want to know who this guy is, why this happened this way, what he's about— how interesting a person he is, and what we might expect from him, the best thing you can do is go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to Dan's Post Corona Podcast, Dan Sinor Post Corona, and listen to this Naftali Bennett episode. It will illuminate you, will educate you, it will enlighten you, and it will entertain you. That's Dan Sinor's Post Corona Podcast.
1: Can can I add something on the whole uh, Mansion stuff in particular? Because this is obviously galvanizing the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and Jamal Bowman has gone on cable news this morning and called uh, Joe Manchin the new Mitch McConnell. He's undermining democracy. There were you know all over the weekend we've we've seen a lot of overheated rhetoric on the uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party targeting Joe Manchin. And no recognition that, that actually uh, getting rid of the filibuster isn't even popular among Democrats. When when Demo- people who identify as Democrats are polled on the issue of the filibuster, more than half say that it should stay, you know, let's not get rid of it. So I'm curious as to why this is at all a strategy that they think is going to be effective, you know, demonizing the swing vote in their own party and and calling him Mitch McConnell and and, you know, pushing for a policy that even their own voters don't support i i i say that i'm not trying to be naive but it seems absolutely insane a strategy okay. well okay so if you follow the
0: uval levin prescription that congress is now a platform rather than you know congress exists as an institution to serve as a platform for individual people to make themselves famous or to push their own positions rather than um a molding a thing that molds people into uh, participants in a larger system, uh, this is the perfect example of it. So Jamal Bowman is a freshman congressman, um, a person of no standing uh, or very little standing whatsoever. And somehow he has now been elevated into a kind of like combatant with Joe Manchin, who was governor of West Virginia, who has been a senator for, I think, 18 years, something like that and who was among the most interesting and complex politicians in the United States because he is a Democrat in a state that Trump won by 40 points. And given the exigencies of the 2020 election, Democrats should be on their hands and knees thanking God for Joe Manchin because he has no business being in the Senate. He's He's in the most Republican state in the country, and he is a Democrat who is serving there. His existence there has given them control of the Senate. That's why they have control of the Senate, and guess what? That's be- so the entire control of the Senate is in the hands of somebody who represents a Republican state, and not only a Republican state, but the Trumpiest state in the country. They wouldn't have it otherwise. Joe Manson's Joe Manson's view of the filibuster and all of that would have, would be of no consequence otherwise, because they wouldn't be in the majority, and Republicans would be in the majority. And a lot of what Jamal Bowman might want to have happen and what might happen if Joe Manchin says okay to certain things that can be voted on by 51 votes, including, by the way, the entire Biden cabinet and sub-cabinet and all the people that you have to, you know, that you would have to, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the term? I'm I'm losing my... Uh, uh, advise Confirm. and consent. Confirm. Confirm right. Confirm. Thank you. Yeah. Right? So... Um, and and Joe Manchin, of course, is also fronting for a whole bunch of people, right? Maggie Hassan, a senator from New Hampshire, uh, up in 2022, won by a thousand votes last time over Kelly Ayotte. Like not didn't win by eight billion votes. She won by a thousand votes. She's got to run again in a year that is going to be unfavorable for Democrats. Manchin is doing her an inestimable service of being the guy who says, I'm going to take the heat. I'm the, but, you know, if, if he didn't, she would have to. And she could not eliminate the filibuster For if she was going to have a political future. She couldn't. It's that simple. That's the issue you run against. It's like she eliminates the filibuster and you spend two $5 trillion because she does it. And guess what? You know... Whoever is going to run against her in New Hampshire, like, walks in to the Senate in 2022. But Jamal Bowman is sitting there. Now, then there's the sort of Twitter liberals, you know, which, whom we all overestimate and all this. But it's like, what's the point of being a Democrat if you're going to be Joe Manchin? It's like, yeah, that's exactly the point. See, he doesn't have to be a Democrat. He could tomorrow walk across, Phil Graham did it, Richard Shelby did it, People, Southerners in states that went Republican turned, went from Democrat to Republican in the 1990s all the time. The Joe Manchin. Governor
2: of West Virginia.
0: Right. Just as a Democrat. Right. So, what's the story here? They should be on their hands and knees thanking Joe Manchin for keeping their hopes alive.
2: Unless the strategy isn't, is more a Demint style purity, which okay. right. doesn't which is actually harmed by legislative success. Because when you demonstrate your own efficacy like that, and the compromise is required of effectiveness as a legislator, crafting narrow pieces of legislation in committee, balancing all these interests, competing interests, determining who wins and who loses, and then the thing emerges from committee and it's got to be watered down further if you even want it to pass. It's a very unsatisfying process. What's really good is to lose, to lose nobly, to have an issue martyred and then to perceive yourself to be a victim of a process that you can't possibly compete in because it's hopelessly corrupt. Okay, that's a that is the organizing principle. Okay, but
0: here's the problem with that. Okay, first of all, you mentioned Jim DeMint. So Jim DeMint was a senator from South Carolina who said notoriously in 2011 he would rather have 30 good conservatives than 60 rhino Republicans, okay? which is insane right because if you have 60 run republicans you can pass legislation at will because you you can get cloture on anything but they're not going to want to pass down the line hard right legislation so you'd rather have 30 republicans who can block nothing and stop nothing and then guess what happened to Jim Demitt he quit the senate to take a job at the Heritage Foundation from which he was justifiably fired, which they should never have hired him for, because he's an idiot, as his own logic here suggests, which is, here's what I want, powerlessness and an inability to do the job for which I was hired. Now, I can understand the idea of the platform rather than the molding institution that you've all, and why that's good for some people. But for the vast majority of people in politics, Remember, the Senate, The House is 435 members. Senate has 100 members. Theoretically, they're professionals. They want to do a job. This is a job that they do. And all I ever hear from people in politics that I take seriously is that it's terrible because you can't get anything done. You can't get anything done anymore. It used to be that, you know, you could get things done. Anyone who has come to the Senate or to a legislature from, say, having been an executive like Manchin, you know, been a governor and then became a senator, is often incredibly frustrated by the experience. Because executives can do things and senators can't do anything without, you know, 59 other senators agreeing to do it. And the harder you make that, the more you turn this body into something useless and pointless and mean that the work that you do is meaningless. Except that people come and kiss your ring and you get to walk around and you get to do something, you know. You don't make that much money, and you don't have that much authority, and all that. And the only um, person anybody cares about in your party is the big guy, you know, is Trump or Biden or whoever. And and the the independent reputation and standing of senators and congressmen is much lower than it used to be because they used to be independent sources of power. And I mean, that's the one thing about this is that Joe Joe Manchin is sort of showing people what it means to be a a a primus inter paris, right? He's one of a 100 people, but he has a great deal of power by circumstance, and you're supposed to reckon with that if you're a serious political movement looking to get things done on your
2: behalf.
1: But they're mocking it. That's what's so, and that is a change from what we used to see before. They used to be the long knives would come out behind closed doors. They'd either try to undermine that power or they Mm. would try to work around it. But this is just open mockery of that power. Right. I
0: mean, in in the first time we saw a lot of this work out, work its way through in our lifetimes, was in the 1980s with uh, Newt Gingrich's assault on Bob Michael, Robert Michael, who was, who was the long-term serving minority leader of the House. And part of the point here is that Michael, who was a gentlemanly guy from Illinois, he had never served in a Congress that was Republican. He had never served where there was anything but a Democratic majority. And he had figured out ways in, you know to, to be, keep himself involved. And Gingrich was like, why are we working with the enemy? We need to defeat the enemy. We need to destroy the enemy. We need to go at the enemy. And Michael's entire mien was, we got to work within the constraints we have. We don't have enough power to do that. And Gingrich is like, well, let's come up with a long-term strategy for power. You can say, Gingrich, that was that's how they won in 1994. I, I think a lot of that was secular and had nothing to do with Gingrich's ideas and that he was a bomb thrower and all that but when Gingrich targeted Michael and said he was a do-nothing loser whatever Michael was a loser like he was he was he was the minority leader in the house and the minority leader in the house has very little power and he had somehow carved some role for himself and Gingrich didn't like that Manchin is the opposite Manchin is the king of American politics right now so what are you gonna do you're gonna you're, you're gonna like throw bombs in his face fine do it for six months and then let's see how long he remains a Democrat now granted if he becomes a Republican then you, you know maybe his power dissipates because then they're gonna win in 2022 and then he'll just be one of many Republicans and who so that's cares why this
2: is even more stupid is that it's not as though Joe Manchin is a Democrat in bad standing he's just not a progressive. Right. That's all that they care about. It's all that they want is somebody who's as radical as they are. And we're mostly talking about the press because polls do not suggest that Democrats are uniformly behind this sort of thing. In fact, polls suggest more or less that the Democratic Party is far more moderate than every single voice with a microphone on Twitter and in the press and on cable tele- news and everywhere else. It's so that Joe Manchin is a, is a good steward of Democratic interests. He votes with the president. He supports his party's interests. Mm-hmm. He supports their their appointees what he doesn't support are efforts to remake the social compact like fundamentally unconstitutional um legislation like hr1 1, s1 1, or the the pairing back of the filibuster in order to change the rules of the senate what they want are structural reforms and joe biden doesn't want structural reforms and most of his party doesn't either but you know joe so, manchin doesn't want structural reforms well of the sort that they
0: advocate yeah, right you said biden anyway go oh, ahead sure.
2: but i think you know therefore
3: i think they'd actually love for him to switch parties, especially if it's yeah. primarily the press that's behind this. Right. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the greatest you know gift ever. That's the story. That's the, that's the, then you, then you've got the, see, we were right. We get, now we get to target this turncoat. Yeah. Um, and we are, and we are victims once again, sure. because, because, because there goes the, you know, there goes our leverage.
0: Okay. So, uh, Let me just talk to you quickly about ExpressVPN. You've heard me talk about it. Let me just ask you, does it make sense that the same company that controls half of online retail also passively eavesdrops on your private conversations at home? What about the idea that a single company controls 90% of internet searches, runs your email service, and gets to track everything you do on your smartphone? Big tech is more powerful than most countries are, and they profit by exploiting your personal data. Put a layer of protection between your online security and these tech juggernauts With ExpressVPN, think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, video watch, message you send gets tracked and data mined. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, the software hides your IP address, something big tech can use to personally identify you. So ExpressVPN makes your activity harder to trace and sell to advertisers and it encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. And what I like most about ExpressVPN is how easy it is to use. You download the app on your phone or computer, you tap one button and you're protected. Stop handing over your personal data to the big tech monopoly that mines your activity and sells your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I use to trust and I use and I trust to keep me safe online, visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get extra three months free. Go to expressvpn.com commentary right now to learn more. Noah, just to end, uh, you uh, you you had an uh, interesting oral AURAL experience uh, on uh, on your browser uh, that
2: I think you want to share uh, with everybody. Sure. So um, sat down on my desk this morning, and I'm I'm, start, I'm writing a blog post for the, for the website. A lot of what we talked about, actually, on this podcast um, will be on that blog post, so check for it later today. I popped open CNN, and CNN is one of the many websites with the obnoxious habit of autoplaying whatever video is embedded at the top of the screen which serves very little purpose to the text, but it's just, it's video, it's engagement, it's SEO, whatever it is. And the video was of Joe uh, Joe Manchin, Joe Biden's Memorial Day address, a segment of it. And before I could get to it, it played for about five seconds. And in that five seconds, I heard Joe Biden say that this country was forged in the basil and fires of war. The basil of war. I didn't make that up. I played it again. He said the basil of war, which sounds delicious, <laughs> but doesn't actually describe anything that you could describe as reality. It's um, it's you know one of these weird verbal tics and he does so many of these verbal tics and he caught himself in the moment cuz he was like I said basil. <laughs> and then he moved on really quickly to fire. But he said basil of war. Okay, so I have all the have- United States
1: in an address to veterans on Memorial Day. <laughs> Basil. Okay, so here's so, here we can now start casting aspersions of blame on the Biden administration on for this. This, this lick, on That's
2: this, that's this is, this is all you've established a continuum of <laughs> uh, mixed metaphors involving vegetables.
1: No, no, but it's it's spawned the most unending and shameful spiral of punning on the commentary. Uh, Podcast uh, uh, text chain that that only Abe, only Abe served. We joked, as That's the tenth right. man in this in this debacle of of spice puns that went awry. So, <laughs> see, I did yeah. one there. Look,
0: all I all I can say is cry havoc and let slip the basil of war. <laughs> and with that, we'll we'll be back to you tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.